you know, back then it was just two of us and there was so many other races that were so much bigger than the Chicago Marathon back then. And a lot of a lot of other races didn't give us the time of day, didn't give us the access. And I remember what that felt like. You know, it's almost like standing on milk crates, looking over the fence, seeing what we could versus giving access and giving us like behind the scenes and letting us uh, experience the race up front. Uh, and so you remember that, and, and, and not that you, not, not that you hold that against other people, but you learn from that in terms of what would you do differently. And I think that's something um, that I, I think's really differentiated us in our work ethic or the way that we approach things. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with the general manager of the Bank of America Chicago Marathon, a global leader in environmentally sustainable events, and is described as professional, highly organized, and a forward-thinking leader. Our special guest started out as an intern while at school before becoming an employee for Chicago Event Management Company in 1989. He is the Executive Vice President of Business Development and Operations looking after the organization of the Chicago Marathon, the JP Morgan Corporate Challenge, Girls on the Run, and the Nike Breaking 2 Project in 2017. His role oversees the production of all Chicago event management events with a particular focus in event operations, emergency response, and sustainability logistics. Over a decade ago, he founded the Race Management Program to provide an intimate forum for race organizers to share ideas and find solutions to create unforgettable event experiences. I'm honored and privileged to introduce to you a dedicated family man who is an avid, uh, avid runner and cyclist, completed his first ever Chicago Marathon at the tender age of 13 years old, and as a board member for Girls on the Run Chicago, Mike Nishi. Mike, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Craig. I, I appreciate um, all, all those compliments, and it sounds like uh, you definitely, I should bring you along at my next presentation, that's for sure, to do my introduction. <laughs> I really do appreciate that. No, I'm more than happy to anytime. Your passion and devotion for Chicago runs deep in your blood. You know, where did you grow up, and what kept you occupied as a child? Well, those are good questions, and you know the one um, where I grew up. I was born and raised, and I and I haven't left Chicago. So a lot of times, you know, some people might be from the Chicago land area, from a suburb. But I was born downtown Ravenswood Hospital in Chicago, and really haven't left. Um, so I'm the downtown uh, Chicagoan uh, through and through, and you know that's uh, something that I'm extremely proud of. Excellent. And so for you as a child, were you really active or oh. were you kind of the quiet person who read books in the library? <laughs> well, definitely not uh, any of that. I was uh, definitely active. Uh, I'm an only child, so I always had to try to find time and occupy my time and, and interest. So it's always exploring 
Yeah, so you know, getting into trouble here and there, and uh, was very active, running around, and very creative. So you know, a lot of my friends had uh, siblings that they could hang out with and keep themselves occupied. But I was able to to make and explore and and, and you know uh, occupy my own time by doing that. Whether it's through skateboarding, BMXing back then, and then running came in when I was a a, a teenager, and that's how I really got my first start when I ran my first marathon in 1979 when I was 13 years old, like you had mentioned, at the tender age of 13 when I, my, my first experience of uh, running the marathon. And as, as you know, that was way before we had age limits. Um, so that's when uh, I, I started and was my first foray into that distance. You know, we normally talk about the marathon being for mature athlete who's kind of done had some experiences and can kind of handle the mental side of things so how did you cope with that first marathon experience and and can you recall what it was like uh back in 19 40 years ago now uh just over 40 years ago yeah. wow um yeah and, and it's it's a vivid memory that's for sure and i can tell you it was had nothing to do with the training because i never trained for it so it, it, it's like one of those things that you don't know what you're getting into until you're really knee deep or neck deep into it and i can tell you it's very vivid or memorable because i remember everything in the aftermath um and it first started off where you know my mother is friends with the organizers or the people that founded and started the marathon way back when in 1977 so it started off as uh, hey michael let's go down to the finish line and um or and and i was like oh that sounds like fun just like you could also maybe run the first six miles of the race and at that time our where we lived was uh, like near the six mile point so it's like oh great idea I'll, I'll stop change get cleaned up go to the finish line so if you can imagine a 13 year old at the the chicago marathon starting you know you have a lot of grown-ups like oh my god look at this kid running and so i had a lot of company and anytime i'd walk people would walk with me and then encouraged me to continue on. And so as I was passing the six mile mark, I was like, wow, this is where I should be turning off. But every, every you know, at the moment that I would stop and say, okay, I think I should go home now. People's like, oh, come on, come on, I'll go with you. So I didn't want to let them down. And at that at that time when I ran the marathon, you know, the, the course had gone, uh, at that time had gone further north. And when you get way up there and, you know, I, I didn't, you know, when you're running the marathon and, you know, back in 1979, there weren't a, a lot of resources. So basically, it's like I was in no man's land. It's like, well, the only way to get back at the turnaround point way up north is to continue running back. And as I was running uh, somewhat near where we lived, it's like, well, I'm almost done with the marathon. I might as well go ahead and finish. <laughs> and I just remember it's like my mom is obviously concerned where it's like, where's Michael? He should be here by now. It's only six miles. And then she sees me coming or running towards a finish line. And, and her and the friends and our friends at the organization were just so ecstatic, yelling and screaming. And the part that I remember that was extremely memorable is that evening, as you can imagine, you being a great athlete um, and better prepared and trained and knowing what you're getting into. You know, I remember that evening after finishing and it was great and an amazing experience. I remember that night is like um, in bed is like you get a you get a niggle or a, a, a cramp and I reach down and all of a sudden I have a side stitch. Um, then my my left calf cramps and then my right side cramps and then my feet cramp and then all of a sudden both feet both calves both hamstrings my back everything cramps up and here you are you're just frozen and I'm stuck in like that 
just in the state of just cramping. I can't breathe. I'm sweating. Like, and it was the most excruciating pain. The running was easy. The marathon was fun. <laughs> but the aftermath that evening was unforgettable. So thank you for asking. And I always recall that. That's the memorable part. But I can tell you that any marathon after that period, I was better prepared um, <laughs> and trained. That's for sure. <laughs> I, I think quite a few people that have done a marathon or an Ironman or something similar endurance event, they've experienced the cramps at some point And and know how excruciating that can be and you're just stuck you can't do anything about it. <laughs> so you know we can feel that affinity for your running events and then you you know obviously in your later teenage years you started out as an intern you know with Kerry Pinkowski and then you became an employee working with him in 1989. What attracted you to being involved in events from a management point of view? Well as, as I mentioned, when I ran the, the marathon at that, uh, when I was 13 years old, there was something that connected. Obviously, I did something that not many people did back then, and it was an oddity, and, and a lot of times viewed as, wow, that's pretty extreme. And, you know, something that stuck with me clearly as a participant at, the, at that moment and period of my life, and then it was just that interest that just kept building. And there's something that you wanted to be part of because obviously I experienced it as an individual. And then you saw everyone else and other participants, volunteers, staff that were engaged with the event and realized the impact that this race had. So I had the, the uh, fortunate opportunity to continue working with the organization um, and that founded and produced the event. And as you mentioned, you know, I got involved as an intern working, you know, really starting in 1982 when I was in high school, working whatever odd jobs I could find in the summer, on the weekends, uh, on the weekends around marathon season, doing whatever I could. So I truly started at the, the very, very bottom. I don't, I, I think I started at the sub bottom, um, doing anything possible from sweeping the streets, moving toilets, doing every errand you can imagine. And, you know, we call that instead of like an intern, as we officially call it now, it was a gopher. Go for this, go for that. <laughs> and I try to do anything possible just to be associated with the event itself. So that's really how I got my start. And I was fortunate to be able to just hang in there, um, do whatever was required and asked of me. And I think that was something that Kerry Pinkowski and I started working together. He is a contractor in 1989, responsible for community outreach, volunteer development, and recruiting. And I just did kind of jack of all trades, doing whatever I could to support the team. And then in 1990, he was named the race director for the Chicago Marathon. And he, you know, he truly wanted and saw, you know, I was willing to do any, everything, and, and really had me. You know, um, instead of working for the promotional advertising agency that produced the race, worked specifically for him um, on the marathon. So that was truly my opportunity to work with him. And granted, it was quite different way back then, back in 1989 and 1990, when the marathon uh, maybe had 5,000 participants to where we are today with last year finishing 4,500. 45,963 finishers. So it was just the two of us answering the phones, doing every single aspect of the job. But it was quite different back in those times um, and to where, you know, the, the, the race has grown and become and um, what it's been able to and capable of doing. And it's quite a, quite a bond you've developed there. And it's very rare in this generation that people remain working for pretty much one company their entire career. So what do you think has been the secret to your leadership relationship with Carrie, you know, lasting over three decades? 
Um, I think we, we, we have a great, obviously, a relationship. We've been together uh, longer, and we always joke about this, uh, longer than we have been with our wives. Um, and I think we, we can always, you know you have a good fit when you can answer each other's conversations or comments just because, you know, we've been together for so long. You know, we have a different approach to things. As you had mentioned, I, my focus is with sustainability, the operational aspects. His is from the marketing, the communication, the face of the event. And I think we just blend it and it's the yin and the yang of each other. It's a good balance. Um, so when you take a look at that organization, he's able to do, um, continue to do what he's great at. And that's that community outreach, connecting and, and communicating and, and having that philosophical approach in terms of what the event means, the marathon means um, to the city, to the state, to what we're trying to do and, and betterment and creating that behind the marathon and bringing people together is incredible. And I love the operational aspects and the logistics and tying all the loose ends. And, you know, that's where I really get excited. So I think there's that great balance, which each of us lends and builds our team around. Yeah. And, and you know, talking about community there, we will um, sort of delve into that a little bit later on. What has been the biggest challenge as the event has grown in size and you needed to scale employees, volunteers, operations and stakeholders in the event? Um, you know, again, I think some of the bigger challenges that we face today in the world that we live is the safety and security. You know, those are always things that you know, we have to focus on and, and something that we obviously take seriously as well as a lot of our partners in the industry. And, you know, when you look back to when we started, a lot of that, you know, again, yeah, was there safety, was there security? Of course, but not at the level that you're seeing these days. And back then, you know, those were probably not as um I'll say hard or areas that we dedicated a lot of resources where the production and the operation logistics were the harder part of organizing an event. And really these days it's, it's the opposite where it's the uh, uh, emergency planning preparedness, the legal aspects, the insurance aspects that have become a lot harder and the operations and logistics and things that we thought were hard or actually the parts that we we enjoy now that seem not as complicated as these other parts and as you know the, the what you planning for the unknown and unexpected um, is very challenging and, and sometimes it's like it's it, it's hard to plan on something that you you know might not happen and things that you just don't like to think about but are vitally important to come up with those plans whether you initiate them or not but that's where really the tables and has have turned and it wasn't too long ago that it's really shifted our focus and, and resources now we're talking about uh, you know just under forty six thousand staff uh, i think somewhere around fourteen thousand volunteers you've also got mm -hmm. Uh, upwards of about 1.7 million spectators that, that line the course. Mm -hmm. Was that change in the safety and security um, sort of instigated by 9-11 and then say the Boston Marathon um, bombing a few years ago? Yeah, and, and there's a lot of changes after 9-11, I think, overall, you know, whether it's everything that you can see and that we've done, and especially our local law enforcement has prepared for, um, as well as after Boston, 
unfortunately, there was a, a lot of things that we had been implementing and improving, um, continually improving over the years and even before Boston took place. So obviously, there were a lot of things that we had to improve and reinforce and expand or enhance after that time. But fortunately, there was a lot of things that we were doing and practices that we just that were already in place. So it wasn't like recreating um, uh, all of our plans or recreating the world or uh, wheel or developing something from scratch. For example, you know, we, we did require even prior to what took place, the tragic events in Boston, we required people to pick up their own packets and show an ID. We had already been instituting clear bags for gear check for a few years prior to that. We had already instituted um, screening and only allowing access to runners into the start finish area um, prior to that. So there was a lot of things and practices that we were already doing because we felt it was the right thing to do to ensure the safety of our participants, of the volunteers, of our staff and partners, um, even before that had happened. So, you know, those are things that we always want to continue to challenge ourselves and clearly after um, Boston, there was a lot of things that we did have to introduce and ramp up and reinforce, especially working with our federal partners or local law enforcement that really helped us um, really uh, create additional levels of security, safety, and planning. So on event day, how does communication and decision-making process work? You know, is there one central command station where all stakeholders are in the same room or are they segregated into different areas and you communicate via radio or, or phone? Um, it, well, there's a little bit of both, but like uh, the, the specific area, we do have a forward command facility. And then what you know we call forward command based on our ICS or incident command system you know um, model you know, developed with by FEMA and the federal government so you know we we have a forward command where we have and what the forward command is considered a facility where you have decision makers um, that's also aligned with the uh, the EOC um, which is opened up or the, excuse me the uh, joint operations center which is open at opened up at our OEMC, there's like alphabet soup, so sorry about that, is our Office of Emergency <laughs> Management and Communication that really is the center and hub within the city of Chicago. And that's where, you know, they're looking and overseeing all activities that are taking place in Chicago. So if there were, it was an incident not related to the, the, to the marathon, obviously they're dealing with that working with our forward command facility or base, communicating with that team um, and, and their constituents and us informing us if there's anything that would impact the race and vice versa. So within the forward command facility, you definitely have decision makers that are there that can make decisions on behalf of any of our local law enforcement, any of our federal partners. And we build um, and provide a lot of the resources that it takes or a lot, but basically all the resources that it takes for us to be able to operate the the marathon on an ongoing basis so it's an operational facility for us so it's a command center for the operation and key logistics on a good day and if things were to go bad whether it's weather related or a major incident we are are working in one facility providing as much of the information that's going to be important to create and provide the information to make those decisions going forward 
So during uh, a recent Active CEO podcast episode with you know a mutual friend of ours, Chris Robb, he talked about mm. the one-day decision-making process of a race director being equivalent to what a CEO would do in over a period of one or two years. So for you, so for your event, what sort of strategies you implement to ensure that decisions can be made quickly without a high level of possible area, uh, error? And how do you communicate that out to your 14,000 volunteers Mm. or people that need to be aware of what's going on, or the athletes as well. Um, so there's like our forward command facility, as I mentioned, we, we have a lot of our, our tools and applications, a lot of technology pulled in there, whether we can see things and um, as information's flowing in, but we also build in the capabilities to communicate broadly, whether it's our dispatch teams and, you know, we with all the radios that we have out there uh, based on different, groups that are using them we can you know keep and maintain you know what's happening on an ongoing basis but if there was something that were needed to be uh, sent out an emergency or decisions weather related lightning evacuation we're able to push that out and communicate to those to those groups through radio we also have the capabilities to send out push notifications text alerts email alerts to all of our constituents, whether it's the participants, whether it's event staff, vendors, contractors, or event staff. Um, we also have the capability through that the radio network and uh, the different public address systems working with those um, uh, stage managers, with the announcers to be able to help push out notifications um, through those public address systems if they don't have their mobile devices on them, if they don't receive those types of notifications or sending out um, through the, the, the mobile technology capabilities that we do have some broad um, announcements, as well as, as you can imagine, social media with our public information officer that's assigned to that facility that can help us vet through different information that they're seeing in social media as well as using that as a platform to send out messaging as well as the capability to work with our media partners whether that's through radio um, live broadcast to help us push that um, information or notifications out through their channels as well. So with so many opportunities for people to take on a fitness challenge or be entertained and utilize their time, how does the Chicago Marathon event maintain a sustainable event that continues to grow in size when we're seeing, say, sport membership drop in, in a number of sports around the world? We're seeing events that are struggling to get people there because there are so many distractions. So what is it about the Chicago Marathon that continues to grow and thrive? And, uh, you know, again, I think it's a lot to do with our partnership as well with the Abbott World Marathons and really elevating our industry and sport, um, you know, just as you probably are aware with the six star finishers and trying to get into um, Chicago to run Chicago, to run New York, to run Boston, London, Tokyo, Berlin. Obviously, that has created a lot of interest and, and elevated you know, all of our events um, working together and collaboratively with the Abbott World, with the World Marathon Majors. Um, also, I feel that what we have done, you know, from 1989, 1990, you know, there were certain things that really helped us create and elevate our race and, and, and witness continual growth over the years. You know, obviously now it's, it's, it's to a point that we're reaching and attaining the cap that we've attained 
on getting to that point that we we've hit in terms of where we feel comfortable but it's about the experience um we might not push and need to be the biggest race in terms of the number of finishers across that finish line and you know some of the things that we do challenge our team though is to continually improve what we have to offer and one of the things that we're always focused on and know that we can always improve is that customer experience and when i say customer it's not just the participants but it's also the volunteers it's also the staff it's also the vendors and the spectators so we really want to ensure that we can create that experience not just the people that are getting to the start line or crossing the finish on and on the journey on the course and across the finish line it's about the entire journey that they they feel or experience from the entering process to the exiting as well as you can imagine with the 14,000 volunteers, what's their experience from the, the very beginning? How do we register? How do we communicate with them? How do we keep them informed? How do we best prepare them for the job ahead to ensure that we value their time? Because as you can imagine, the, the, the commodity that we can't control that's important that we need is their support and their volunteering, their time and helping us, helping other people. So as you can imagine, if you can help create a great experience for all those constituents, that's something that they want to be part of. So I think that's been something that we've been successful in trying to do and we're never satisfied. And that's the other thing. We just continually want to improve how we do things. Um, And that starts with you know, everyone in the organization and something that we communicate to our volunteers and event staff. You know, there's never a point that we would ever ask a volunteer to do something that we're never willing to do alongside with them. And I think they appreciate and respect that. And it's amazing when you can do something with someone, um, how much more that they want to do that with you. Yeah, brilliant. So people are becoming more empowered to talk about how our actions affect the environment and climate change. The Chicago Marathon environmental initiatives began during the mid 2000s. You know, what are the key strategies you've implemented to reduce the impact on environment? And and you know, think and you know, that's something that we really have taken pride in. And as you mentioned, something that I I have a particular interest in. And something that we've been really focused on for several years and over a decade now, where we've really focused time, attention, and resources to sustainability. As you're aware, working with Council for Responsible Sport to really help us set those goals and levels to help us reach and and strive to reach some of those goals to be uh, to reach different certification levels. So that's always it helps us create those guidelines or guide rails to be able to stay the course, to be focused, to be able to challenge our teams um, to do things from sustainability, not just from a reduce, reuse, recycle, which are important. Um, to, to help from an education and awareness standpoint, but the other areas that are just important from sustainability in terms of um, access, education, technology, and how we use technology to get better and be more sustainable. Um, so those are things that we've really been focused on. And the other part, as um, I, I, you might have heard or I might have mentioned, is uh, storytelling. So if you know when you talk reduce, reuse, recycle, people understand somewhat what that is. And a lot of times when you have a you know a, a aluminum can or a plastic bottle and you do recycle it, a lot of times you don't know what happens beyond that. You're just hoping that something 
um, it will actually be recycled. Something would be so it doesn't a landfill. One thing that we have done is obviously we do that. We also want to ensure that we can help the journey of that item to the final outcome and tell that story so people can really be aware of what's being done and how can we help support that and then create and illustrate this, those um, those successes so it really will help tell that story, which I feel has a better impact. That's my opinion. I think it would have a better impact, better understood, so it can help change behavior. One of the examples um, that is in terms of that closed loop storytelling that we that we really feel that's impactful is when we collect those plastic bottles um, that we you know distribute to the participants or to volunteers. We go through the effort and educate and to tell people you know where to, to drop those off to help us you know, recycle the bottles. But beyond just saying okay, drop it here, we're recycling it. We want to tell that story. So we work and go through the effort to work with a commercial um, uh, hauler to be able to take those bottles to someone that will help recycle the bottles, um, then turn it into flakes to turn it into pellets to be able to turn those into um, fabric. Um, so we'd like to tell that story and then really work with, okay, what's being done with that fabric at that time? And uh, a lot of, and I don't know if you know, were aware of this, and we're almost to the point where it's a complete closed loop where we can say some of these bottles or bottles were collected at the marathon were used to, to create our participant shirts and hopefully one day we'll get there. However, at least working with our partner, Nike, providing those participant t-shirts, we've worked with them and they are made out of hundred percent recycled polyester. So, you know, you can imagine the power behind saying, you know, some of the, um, the, the uh, material or the yarn used for those shirts have uh, a lot of the bottles for the previous year. So we're getting closer to that. But you can tell the impact or the power behind that if we're able to tell that story. Um, and that has changed in terms of really working with different vendors now in terms of what are some of our the more sustainable procurement options, working with a signed vendor being able to to um, uh, work with their third-party suppliers to purchase fabric that's made out of 100% recycled polyester to create our branding with. So we're really focused on those storytelling capabilities so we can create those initiatives, share those stories to our participants, to the volunteers, so they can really see what the, the additional effort that a volunteer goes into or provides, they can see what that outcome is. It's not just, here, recycle this plastic bottle, but yes, here's the plastic bottle, here's the journey and life cycle, and here's what we're creating at the end. So we're really focused on um, all these different initiatives and how can we close the loop on those and how can we tell and share those stories to so many people that we know that when you, especially children, when they can see what can be done, it might change their mind and their behavior, which, as you know, can help influence their homes and the families where they work, live, and play. So that's what we're trying to do. One of the other ideas that I really enjoy is the compostable uh, compostable cups with nature's little mm. recyclers, where the cups sure. are composted, and then your team go out with the community, and it's 
they've used the compost then to go into the gardens around Chicago City. I think that's fascinating because not only are you recycling, but it's also connecting your team with the community and getting the community involved in and how we can look after the city of Chicago. Yeah, and you know, again, that's another close. That's truly something that is closed loop for us. Where, you know, we're actually doing something with the items collected. So as you just indicated, and it's talk. It's amazing when you just start having those conversations with your partners, um, what you're able to learn and what you're able to do together. So we were, you know, um, uh, going and trying to use compostable cups at our aid stations and really struggling to find the right type of cup and a vendor to provide um, those resources for us. And we knew that Gatorade, one of our great uh, long partners, had been using and providing compostable cups. And then, you know, working collaboratively with them, they provided who their vendor um, is. And so we reached out to that vendor and we used the same vendor to provide our cups, which is made out of bamboo and it's easier to compost especially through nature's little recyclers, like you mentioned, which are worm, excuse me, are worms that go through the process. And then what they generate um, or create is that enrich, enrich compost at the end. Um, so it's amazing when you are able to have these conversations and the solutions that come about by, by having these collaborative, um, that collaborative dialogue with your partners. Um, and it's so, as you mentioned, is like now we've gone and now all of our cups at all the aid stations are compostable, whether it's Gatorade, whether it's our water cups. Now the collection, we like you, uh, I mentioned, we work with a commercial hauler, work with nature's little recyclers, work with the larger commercial composting company, send our composting there. Four or six months later, we go back, we purchase a lot of that soil um, back from that company so then we can donate that to community gardens to our friends at the Chicago Park District and so that's the exciting part we're able to deliver this enriched soil and people like how did you create that how can you go from this paper cup this compostable cup to this soil um, and so it's amazing what you can do and then when you illustrate and you can tell that story to the volunteers they have that sense of pride that they were part of something and you're leaving something positive behind in our communities. So it's just really helps you continue to tell that story and that life cycle post event and many months after the event and then coming together with whether it's those same volunteers from the aid station, but yet another group of volunteers from that community and just understanding what we're able to do and what we're leaving behind. And you can physically see it, touch it, smell it. It's tactile, tangible, and leaving something positive behind that affects their communities in a positive manner. So we're just going to move off the Chicago Marathon a little bit here. So in 2017, you were involved in the sort of first sort of publicized attempt at breaking the two-hour mark in the marathon. That Nike Breaking 2 project must have been really fascinating to be involved in. You, I think they missed, what was it, missed the two-hour mark by 25 seconds. You know, can you recall you know, what, what that was all about and, and what, why was it so special to be involved with? Yeah, it was uh, you know, a wonderful opportunity um, to be part of. And we're just fortunate that we were asked by our partners at Nike and um, you know everything that they put into it and their vision uh, as you can imagine now that you know uh, Ellie Kipchoge did break it 
but I don't think he would have been able to do that without that first step, without that moon shot, getting close to the moon. Uh, they might not have landed on the moon at that time, but they got close enough but within reach to really say it can be done. Um, so they did take a lot of risk. They did have a lot of vision. Um, but they, you know, being part of that and seeing what's possible and what it really took was just amazing. And, and again, I can't thank Nike and, and, and them to reach out to give us that opportunity. Um, the other part is you can imagine Nike being such a big organization. You know, there were so many people and departments that were involved. And, the, you know, you know, fortunately, they realized they needed someone with the, the event expertise um, to be able to tie all this together, to focus on the production, the operations, and the logistics of the event. And, you know, fortunately, they contacted us, and I think they contacted uh, Chicago Event Management because of the work that we do with Nike, with the Bank of America Chicago Marathon. As you're aware, Nike is uh, one of our great sponsors, um, I, I believe, since 2008. So they've been a la- longstanding partner uh, of of uh, the marathon, and so they they reached out to us just knowing the work that we've been able to do with them. And you know, fortunately, we picked up the phone and we said yes. And it's been it was an amazing experience, um, despite not being able to get there. There was just so much that we've learned, and just being part of that was just so memorable. It'll be definitely something that I'll, I'll remember for my lifetime. That's for sure. Talking about you know sponsorship there. People find sponsorship quite challenging just to to get a sponsor in the first place, let alone get them to renew and, and stay long term. And you talked about Nike being around for you know probably 12, 13 years. Um, Bank of America has been around for oh, a very long time. If we because it because it acquired the original sort of naming rights sponsor of LaSalle right. Bank in you know who started in 1994 and have continued right through when bank of america acquired them in 2007 so do they you know what sort of feedback do you hear from the sponsors that enable you that that sort of showcase why they want to be still involved in the event so many years later you know i think we've been fortunate that you know again like we just talked about earlier in terms of our growth and you know what's what's the uh, what's behind that success and that growth. And it's everything that we just mentioned in terms of always challenging ourselves. And I think when, when you have a product and a property like the marathon and everything that we put into it, that our other partners want to rise with us. Um, so as you can imagine, we've had long standing partners and sponsors and Gatorade that's been here just, you know, ever since Carrie and I have been together, American Airlines, same thing. And it's been great to be able to have those long-standing partnerships that are growing with us, that are on this journey, that recognize the effort that we put into this, that our team puts into this, that are dedicated, that are always challenging. And if you can imagine, those are things that align with their interests, align with their their objectives as well. And if you're a partner and a sponsor, I think you'd want to do and, and have that same mentality, philosophy, and you want to be aligned with that same type of work ethic, that same type of vision um, that reflects in terms of who they are and what they aspire to be as well. So I think it's just a great partnership. And and again, I, when, when instead of just giving you money and just putting your name up on a few boards or panels, you know, we like I had mentioned, when you start to collaborate with them and they help you come up with these solutions, is it a true partnership that you really you have them 
around the table, like I mentioned with Gatorade and the cups, that they're part of that. And when you can help communicate that and, and illustrate that, do they realize it's like this is their event as well? They're just not you know, just being sold a you know a bunch of entitlements and rights, but they're also part of the event, and that's you know they're in the fabric woven into it. So you talked a lot about there around information sharing, collaboration. In the world of mass participation events, you know, we see a lot of event organizers who like to protect their ideas and their secret source. So how did the race management program come about and how has it enhanced not only your event, but also all the people that are involved events? Yeah, and, you know, thank you for that. And that's something that I, I really take personally and I have a passion around is the race management program. Um, you know, and, and it really starts with, you know, how when Carrie and I worked together, started working together and how we got our start. You know, back then it was just two of us and there was so many other races that were so much bigger than the Chicago Marathon back then. And a lot of a lot of other races didn't give us the time of day, didn't give us the access. And I remember what that felt like. You know, it's almost like standing on milk crates, looking over the fence, seeing what we could versus giving access and giving us like behind the scenes and letting us uh, experience the race up front. Uh, and so you remember that and, and, and not that you not, not that you hold that against other people, but you learn from that in terms of what would you do differently? And I think that's something um, that I, I think really differentiated us in our work ethic or the way that we approach things. Like I mentioned, we, we, we would want to work side by side with our volunteers. You know, these are things that we want to give back to our industry and help others um, learn and, and share those best practices. You know, a lot of what we do is new under the sun, you know, and I, and I really feel that well, if you collaborate and share those best practices, we learn just as much as other people learn from us. And I think, you know, one of the mentalities that we have is that, you know, if, if a participant or a volunteer has a bad experience in an event or any race for that matter, they might not want to participate in another race, which is just bad for our event and our industry as a whole. So if there are things that we can share to make it easier to get over certain hurdles or through certain loops um, or hoops, excuse me, you know, that that's the, that's the intent of the Race Management Program Summit and what was really uh, driving behind that. That's why we want to provide provide plans where we can to make things easier to share those best practices so we can learn from one another if there are mistakes that we've made, I've made, I want to make sure that people are aware of that so they don't get tripped up by the same things that tripped me up um, from the past. So, you know, that's the spirit behind it. That's the reason that we really spend time and focus on that development, that sharing of those best practices and creating programs to give access to our partners in the industry. So talking about mistakes, you know, is, is there one memorable mistake that that you made along your career that stands out and, and what you huh. learn and change from, from that experience? Yeah, it's like, and I've made many, and you've probably heard that a lot. It's like, we all make mistakes and, you know, that's the only way you can improve. Um, and, and there's, you, of course, you don't, you, you want to celebrate mistakes, not based on the outcome, but you want to celebrate them in terms of what you learned from them. Um, and those are things that, as you know, from an organization and a leader within an organization, you want to be able to point those mistakes out so other people feel comfortable to do the same. 
um, not for fear of being punished, but for uh, you don't want people don't withhold it for fear of being punished, but you want them to expose that so we can all learn and improve. And so that's what's really helped us in terms of getting better and better is that being in having that you know radical uh, candor transparency and sharing you know mistakes and how do we get better overall um, so there's a there's a couple that I've done but I remember one and it was one year that we've um, that we ran out of metals and this is I think back in 1997 that that had happened we run short by a couple hundred right we, I think we knew that we were gonna run short um, and and so we did an additional order and lo and behold we ran out of metals it's like how could we have done that how could we have run out we've calculated we anticipated it um, and we ordered more well after the fact and of course we had to send out apologies and letters and then lo and behold where was that additional box of metals underneath my desk so <laughs> you know those are things we definitely have learned uh, in terms of inventory and control and, and making sure that we know where these items are coming in and uh, quality assurance and ch- uh, checking. And then more recently, another mistake that was made maybe just a couple years ago, a, a relatively big one, um, you know, we had planned and we started the, the International 5K on Saturday prior to the marathon with great success, continual growth. And those are things that because it's growing, because it's something new, there are certain things you're just not planning for or aware of. You know, they, you do anticipate some things that aren't going to go well. So you could create contingency plans. So one was the event size, the, you know, was trying to send and release people out of the start to control the flow on the course as well as to the finish. You know, we had a new design for the finish area, the distribution of items. Um, So we always had a contingency plan in terms of, okay, we're going to control the flow at the start. Um, And on the course, same thing. We know that there are some narrow pinch points. We anticipated at the finish line it might be a little narrow and some plans to ensure that we can maximize the spacing to allow better flow. You know, the positioning of some of the items we knew that could create a backup. So any one of them that but would have been and, you know, uh, uh, that would have happened, we could have kind of uh, gotten through. But unfortunately, all of them kind of there were certain things that, you know, the, the pinch point or the um, the start line, it had been planned to do a pull start so we can really control how many people are on the course at a given time, uh, which would have controlled the flow on the course, which would have controlled um, the adjustments we made for the finish line, which really uh, would have helped with the overall flow. So what happened was um, I get a call and and they said, you know what, can, you know, I think we should just go with one start um, and let the runners out on uh, all 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 on the course at one time and we'll control and narrow the pinch point and i said okay sounds like a good plan as long as you feel comfortable i support it and so we did it and so what it created is a backup at the finish line and it was something that we just weren't prepared for based on the runners and the dynamic of that event so again that was my fault my call my responsibility it impacted the other people at the different areas and i own it and so what did we learn is like we really investigated where some of these issues were because of that, and we went back to a better model in terms of how do we better start the event, different waves, pulse starting, really controlling the flow um, of many people, the, that course, and that type of runner that can accommodate on that in that event. 
So there was a lot learned. So there's that was a, a a long version, but I really wanted to be clear. It's like there is so much you can learn and improve if you're willing to kind of expose that issue and accept that blame and point that out. Um, especially in my position, it was something that I own, and I think people appreciated that. And it's amazing once you do that, how other people are willing to um, to share other. Uh, mistakes or failures so we all can learn through that process yeah and i've I'm, i've made a few quite a few in my event career as well so i know how important it is to be humble and own up and and learn from them as quickly as possible because it's the debrief that is the most important aspect where the learnings come from so you can improve next time we all know smart people have great answers but the most successful people ask great questions when was the last time you did something for the first time? The last time I did something for the first time. Um, and it, maybe it's more in terms of personally, you know, I, it's it, starting in like one of my resolutions. And, 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 and I'm not sure if you want the, the work related or personal related, but it's basically starting Pilates. So, it's something that I've been struggling with as like, so many like stress points and just not able to run like I used to. And that's just old age, I guess. But instead of just saying it's old age, what can I do about it? So what I did is thanks to my wife and my two daughters, uh, they got me uh, a Pilates uh, class and I just been loving it. So that's something that I've started um, and more recently so I can get better health wise. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Well, that's a that's also a great question, and that's something that I've really been focused on. Is just to your point, I, I, you know, there's certain goals that I have for myself, and truly to be better listener and to ask better questions overall, and um, that's something that I, I need to do a much better job on. And so those are those are questions, you know, that I keep asking myself: is how can I be a better leader? How can I, how can I better engage our team? How can I be more patient? How can I least listen better? How can I ask and engage our team by asking them questions, not necessarily about focusing on the how, but really on the what? What needs to be done? What's the goal or objective? And then let them help develop the how and maybe ask those questions to get them there on their own terms with their own answers so it's it's maybe not that one specific question that i've been focused on myself but it's based on how can i better use questions to get the outcome we're all looking for and really helping you know be a leader versus just giving them the answers or just being uh, uh you know micromanaging or just giving them or just directing them Brilliant. What is your definition of leading an extraordinary life? You know, and and one of the things is, you know, creating these habits and really changing that this really changed who I am. Um, and, and not so long ago, after I turned 50, you know, there's just like, there's so many, I knew I, I in my life, I'm not getting faster. Um, those challenges and those PBs and everything else, I just knew I couldn't do what I used to do. So um, how can I get 
better as an individual, as a as a father, as a as a husband. Um, so when I turned fifty, it's like you you have that moment. Say, what can I do? And I need to change my lifestyle. You know, I can't continue to perform at the level I have, not just physically or athletically, but professionally. Um, so the demands that you know work has on our lives, personal lives, family lives, and at work, you know, some of the things that I had to change personally that you know really has made a huge difference um, in the past four years, and that's really quit. Um, you know, uh, challenging myself in terms of uh, quit eating sugars, sweets, processed sugars, carbohydrates, bread, um, and alcohol. And so it's really helped me become so much more focused. And along with that, just like I said, doing other things that I know it's going to be more from a wellness and proving who I am personally and professionally is the stretching and the exercise. And the other thing that I've incorporated from a habit standpoint is meditation. So when you think about this a major shift of my lifestyle back in, um, when I turned 54 years ago, um, and incorporating these other practices, it's really made a difference of who I am. And I know that my family can say it's really changed who I am personally, affecting it from a positive aspect, our lives at home. Um, and I can say the same probably with the coworkers and our team at the office, really being a lot more focused and more energized and, and bringing, bringing a different attitude in terms of who I am and that presence at work. Nice. You provided some great insights there today and lots of lessons learned for people. So how can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you? And you know, the, the one way is to, to follow us at Chicago Event Management going on our web website, um, keeping up in a newsletter. And, you know, again, we share a lot of information uh, there, best practices, quotes, what our team is reading and, and sharing information like that. Obviously, anyone can reach out to me personally. My information is on the um, our website. And of course, I'd be more than happy to to, to connect with people, answer questions. I'm always available. Uh, they can reach out to me via email and, uh, you know, you know, through LinkedIn as well and my profiles um, on there. And of course, people can connect with me. It is open to anyone and I'd be happy to connect through there as well. Excellent. So we'll put them in the show notes. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today to learn about your how, how running has been a part of your life pretty much from the beginning mm-hmm. and and the just an, that incredible story of uh, tenacity and just keep going when you when you went out to do just six miles of the marathon age 13 and ended up completing the whole thing uh, you know that's a, that's a big enough challenge for anyone let alone a 13 year old uh, to learn about your passion for events and sustainability and the difference that you're making not only for the people that do the Chicago event but also for the community the volunteers the other stakeholders that are involved, how you're collaborating with key stakeholders and sponsors to ensure that the world is a better place to live in, to the approach on how you deal with decision making. And you can tell in the tone of your voice that you've got this very calm approach and and quite measured. And I'm sure you've always got things you want to improve, but you've got this great calming effect as a leader that I'm sure makes decision making and empowering people so easy for those that are that are around you. So thank you very much for sharing your your wonderful insights and some great projects that you have done over the years and continue to 
innovate on and uh, and make a better world for those out there that uh, love to enjoy the environment and get out and you know especially those that like to run as well so thank you very much for your time no thank you craig for this opportunity to connect with your listeners and and again anytime and you know that i can be of assistance and you know want to share you know what we've been able to do and our successes and the next mission that we have for us as well On this week's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about single task, not multitask, for productivity. If you try and multitask, our brains move too fast. We lose focus and take on too much. In fact, the brain can't actually multitask, and what it actually does is task switch. If you're task switching too often or too quickly, it slows down your response time and prevents you from completing tasks quickly, if at all. Break down your work into single tasks and block your time accordingly to the high priority tasks first. First, write down all your tasks. Second, prioritize your tasks according to low, medium and high priority. Third, schedule your time specifically for high-priority tasks first in your calendar. Then delegate all medium and low priorities where possible. So plan your day so that you can single task to get the best productivity and performance as a leader. Thank you for listening to a thought-provoking conversation with Mike Nishi on episode 94, Chicago Marathon Beyond the Race on the Active CEO podcast. Do you have a whole lot of high priorities right now, but you don't know which one to do first? We've found the priority two-by-two matrix helps leaders find clarity, especially when under pressure. The first priority two by two matrix that you can apply is importance versus urgency. Where you place importance on the Y axis and urgency on the X axis. You then create four squares as per the two by two and you place your priorities in the applicable box that corresponds with how important and urgent it is. So that was importance on the y-axis and urgency on the x-axis. If the order of priorities isn't clear, then a powerful priority 2x2 matrix to use is effort versus impact. This will allow you to determine what priorities will give you the greatest impact with the least amount of effort. If you'd like to learn more about the priority 2x2 matrix, or other tools and skills to improve your productivity and performance, then please contact me for a complimentary 30-minute phone call at craig at nrg2perform.com or click on the contact page of www.nrg2perform.com website. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement 
by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.